At this time, if you would, open up with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings 20, we're going through the whole thing. Don't be worried, though. It really is not as bad as you might at first think. And it's going to be, I pray, very beneficial for us. Because remember, this moment right here where God is speaking to us, that is the moment where the Holy Spirit grips us and twists and turns and, and changes us. Indeed, Scripture even uses a word like metamorphosis, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. And so may the Lord do such a thing today out of 1 Kings chapter 20. Here is the main point. God gives many gifts. We're going to see three, three biggies for sure. Uh, God gives many gifts. Let me pray to God for the reading of this word, and then we'll read 1 Kings 20. Oh God, we do pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, we would be gripped by this word, and that we would see the Lord Jesus. We would see this sweet gospel manifestation. We would see you working. You, we would see you giving many gifts, and, and yet, God, we would see you for who you are, the one who desires to reveal himself to us, not because we deserve it, but because you love us enough not to simply give us over to our own base desires. And so, God, please use this word for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This is 1 Kings chapter 20. Let's start with verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, now, and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, the king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors in the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. <laughs> Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 
7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you've lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers. In one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your, uh, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. 
So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. The grass withers, the flowers do fade, but the word of the Lord, oh, it stands forever. Yes, this word, even at length. Thank you. Thank you for allowing the reading of the word in God's house. Let's see three points that will help us to digest what it is that we just took in. Remember, God gives many gifts. Three points, salvation, surety, and discipline. God gives the gift of salvation the gift of surety, and the gift of discipline. First, the gift of salvation, verses 1 through 21. Here comes Syria. We have been in the northern kingdom of Israel following God's revelation to his people through Elijah, and it's been a tough go already. The people have turned away from God. The leadership has turned away from God. The politics have turned away from God. And here comes Syria. Syria is the start of a line of godless empires that would plague God's people from here on out. Massive resources, troops, and power were the identifiers of these empires, and we see that here as it starts. 32 kings, horses, chariots, troops, and enough power to stroll into the stronghold of Israel, look the king in the eyes and say, all your stuff and all your people, they are all mine. Verse 4 of chapter 20, this is how the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, and all that I have, Syria, is no joke. But the king of Syria went too far. His pride and his greed, they got the better of him. God himself speaks about the people of God as being stubborn. And when Ben-Hadad seeks to take even more from the kingdom, King Ahab, the elders, and the people, they all rise up. Verse 8, do not listen or consent, right? Uh, taxation without representation. It's kind of a nice verse. Everybody quotes other things, but that's a pretty good one, right? It, it's an ethos of the people of God. <laughs> that's too much. Do not listen or consent. Of course, this infuriates Ben-Hadad. Just like a hornet that stings your leg, this king of Syria now wants to crush the stinging bug of Ahab and his people and turn the whole place into dust. That's what he says in verse 10. It's an oath, right? I promise I'm going to do this. That's what he's doing. He's wagging his finger and saying, I swear, right? May the gods do so to me, right? That's what that uh, Old Testament phrase is. And what does he say? If I can level this place and if we can crush it enough where I can give the people a little bit of dust per hand. That's how bad I'm going to crush you. 
But God has other plans. Verse 13, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you shall know. Why? You shall know that I am the Lord. God gives many gifts. And one of the biggest is the gift of salvation. This is why God delivers these people from the hands of Syria, that they might know who he is, a saving God. It's why God continually, time and time again, as you march through Genesis 1, all the way through, God constantly redeems, saves, delivers, brings out of, preserves his people. It's because he's giving a gift of salvation and revealing it in this multitude of ways. Verse 21, the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great, with a mighty blow. God gives many gifts and built into this gift of salvation is our second point, this gift of surety, verses 22 through 30. Simply defined, surety means a person who takes responsibility for another's performance. That's what uh, surety means if you're talking about a person, right? It also can simply mean the state of being sure or certain. So here we have this kind of surety here. Israel wins the first battle, but if you remember from that reading of the word, the drunk kings were in control of the Syrian armies rather than the sober commanders. More than that, the terrain was hilly rather than flat, rendering the tactical advantage of horses and chariots obsolete. Therefore, in the reasoning of the Syrians, the defeat was a fluke, and the next battle would show the true victor. Verse 28, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the gift of surety, right? Remember, a person who takes responsibility for another's performance, the state of being sure or certain, because they have done this, fear not. I'm about to give it all to you. This whole army, it's gone, right? Uh, God is revealing himself to his people and showing that through this massive army of Syrians. At least, as as you see, at least 127,000, perhaps even more. But built into these two things, even as God extends the gift of salvation with a built-in gift of surety, he provides another unique gift. This one is very important, and it's the gift of discipline, verses 31 through 43. God gives his people the gift of salvation that we might know him and have a relationship with him. Okay, I'm tracking. More than that, God desires this to be the reality, so he gives us the gift of surety. In other words, he accomplishes the feat of salvation. Okay, I'm with you. That makes a whole lot of sense. That actually sounds really good. That's the good news right there. But he's also dealing with sinful people, ones who go astray and desire to break his command and to disbelieve him rather than to believe him. And so he provides the gift of discipline. In the general sense, the thought behind the word discipline, if maybe you're familiar with it, I don't know what y'all think. Maybe, maybe you're more enlightened than me, but when I hear the word discipline nowadays or when I ask people about it, this is the kind of 
connotation that I get. Uh, fear, domination, punishment, embarrassment, right? I'm going to discipline you, right? It's typically kind of tinged with this uh, almost sourness or, or kind of poison feel where the word just doesn't seem like it works anymore for a lot of people. But in the biblical sense, and for us, especially here at Centennial and elsewhere where we, we hold to the Bible in its fullness, in the biblical sense, discipline is teaching and revealing with the intent of reconciliation. So here's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, for instance. I, I don't need to provide any self-made definitions. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews chapter 12, 11. One of humanity's greatest weaknesses in the fall, one of their greatest weaknesses is a general inability to receive discipline. Just can't be disciplined. It just doesn't work. If you've raised children, you know it. If you're a boss, you know it. If you're a, a co-worker, you know it. If you have a boss, you know it. Uh, you just know it. If you're a student, you know it. If you're a teacher, you know it. Everybody knows it, right? There is an inability, generally speaking, to receive discipline. Part of that inability is a right retaliation against what I had just mentioned before, the sinfully corrupted forms of discipline that we see on this earth. When people do it wrongly, when they poison the well, every time you draw up from it, you recoil, right? Makes sense. Everybody's looking away from discipline because it just doesn't seem right on earth. The other part, though, it's our own sinful disposition of pride, right? In other words, uh, the reason why we don't like discipline is because we always think we're right. If you're always right, why do you need discipline? Makes no sense. I'm right. Let me discipline you. That's how it should work, actually, I think, now that I think about it. I, I need to be disciplining you. You don't, you don't discipline me, right? And so then you get this pride moment where I know, right? I know, and you don't. But then the other person, perhaps, if you've ever been in something like this, well, no, 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 you don't know. I know, right? And, and it goes back and forth, going back to that greatest weakness, the general inability to receive discipline. In the midst of all of that, all of the muck and mire of this sinful world, God constantly provides the perfect gift of discipline to his people. And we see that in the culmination of Ahab's dealing with the Syrian king. Listen well. This king who desired to take all that Ahab and his people had, this king who wanted to grind the nation of God into dust, this king who spit in the face of the God of the universe by thinking a flat place was not his domain and only the hills, this king cut a deal. He cut a deal with the king of Israel. Verse 34, Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I'll restore them. You may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I, I'll let you go on these terms. So we made a covenant with him and let him go. We can accidentally pass over this. It's easy to do. Thankfully, God gives us a lion devouring somebody to wake us up and say, wait a second, something wrong must have just happened there. In the eyes of the world, Ahab, Ahab would have been praised. A trade deal like no other we've ever seen. Financial woes, they're gone. Food and safety for your entire family, there they are. All you need to do is give me your soul. That's all I want, just your soul. 
Money, food, none. War, I'll take it all away. Just give me your soul. Matthew chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Ahab did the wrong thing in the eyes of God. And strong discipline followed. Verse 42 and 43 speak quite, quite specifically to it. Because you've let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Without God's gift of discipline, of vexation and sullenness, Ahab would have never known his faultiness before God. He would have never even had a chance to humble himself and to repent before the Lord. But he did. He did have that chance. And he actually capitalizes on that chance in the following chapter. He gets the chance because God gave it to him through discipline. In the midst of hard discipline, God had not shut down communication with Ahab. And that is the very good news that's not only for Ahab, but for God's people throughout the ages. Now, before I finish this, uh, uh, this sermon off, let me just give, I know this is going to sound crazy, uh, eight quick applications, okay? And we're going to march through them. And these are food for thought moments. And then we're going to conclude and we're going to see, as I hope you know, that sweet gospel of the Lord Jesus playing itself out through this whole historical telling. Now, first, number one, the Syrian king's greed turned out to be his downfall. If he would have taken the money and run, think about this. Think about this, this story and how it plays out. Ahab conceded. The battle was won. But the Syrian king's greed turned out to be his downfall. He didn't take the money, and the events and God's wrath followed, right? Uh, they wouldn't have been kindled against him, but they were. Here's the application. How close is money to being your downfall? How often do you think about it? How often do you talk about it? In church, at home, at work. I know it's got to be talked about. Trust me, I know. It's budget season. Deacons know too, so do the elders. I know. How close is it to your downfall? Be careful. Be careful. Number two, more than greed, the Syrian king assumed victory before he had won. Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as one who takes it off. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. You are setting yourself up to be disappointed by God's design. If you are thinking eight chickens and he gives you five, but God is in control, God is good, God is all power, and his design is to give you five chickens rather than eight. Don't count your chickens before they hatch and put yourself in the place of God in your planning. Doesn't mean you don't plan out. Don't take it too far, though. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Number three, Israel's smaller army had individual buy-in. Maybe you noticed it, maybe you didn't. Each man struck down his own, right? Every single one of the 7,232 people of Israel struck down at least one right? There was individual buy-in to the, to the people, to the army. There was certainly community connection in this nation of God, but, but they all brought action to the table. 
Are you reliable and active enough? Church, home, work, are you reliable and active enough? Wherever you find yourself to be one who is known as striking down your man, right? Uh, Do you have enough action and buy-in to whatever institution we're talking about? Church is obvious, right? But so is family and work. Are we the ones who are going to buy in and reveal who we are as we move forward? Number four, the clearly ungifted Syrian ally kings, they forced themselves into strategic military command of their troops. Did you notice it? The commanders weren't commanding. The drunk kings were. They proved disastrous in their leadership. Spiritually and physically speaking, are you forcing yourself into a place of service or work that you're not gifted in? At its simplest form, let me just ask this. What is your spiritual gift? What is it? If you can't answer immediately, let's talk. Let's talk. I bet you many of you can this is something the session's been talking about, uh, uh, actually devoting quite some, some time to. And so if you're dealing with this and you're working through this, if you're thinking about your individual buy-in, you're wondering what it means to be spiritually gifted. You've got one. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are gifted. And you are gifted to serve right here and in your workplace and in your family. Let's talk if you're having trouble working through that. Begin to pray about it at least. Verse 5, the Syrian, I mean uh, uh, number 5, the, the Syrians made a fatal mistake. God is God over here, but not over there. So let's go over there. <laughs> they pulled the old, the old wink, wink run, right? Well, it might not work over here, but let's just go over here and see if it works, right? God's not God over here, but, but that's not how it works. God is God over all things. Are you recognizing that in your own life? Or are you splitting saying, well, God's God at church, but not on Monday. Or maybe worse, not on Sunday night. Let's not even go to Monday. Let's be real. He's God in the morning. He's not God at night, right? Think on that. Number six, are you on guard for the sinfully enticing deals that can be struck in this life? They look so good on paper. New job, more pay, better this, better that. But the fine print is always seeking your soul. Ahab dropped his guard and the moment of his victory, the moment where everyone is rejoicing, became massive, crushing defeat. It was over. Chastisement and strong discipline followed. The greatest victory became the greatest defeat. Are you guarding your soul as God would call us to do against those wiles of the world? Number seven, did you notice the relatively remarkable story of a prophet who needed to get punched? Sometimes God's design is not so evident, but God still has a design. If a prophet walks up to you and says, punch me in the face, you better believe that God has called him to say that, and so you better punch him in the face. It sounds so silly, but to go against it is inappropriately. It's just inappropriate. And we see that in the shocking judgment of the lion, which reveals Ahab's disobedience in not listening to God and the call of God on his life and devoting that Syrian king to destruction. There is a plan, even when it seems absurd. And so when you think to yourself, there's no way. There's no way I couldn't work on Sunday, for instance. That's when I talk uh, to some people about, you know, they're working. If I give this up, what am I going to do? right? Or there's no way I could do this. 
Or there's just no way that, that this could work. God's calling me to save this. But in my field, if I said that, I'd get fired, right? Uh, we, we start to uh, uh, question God's plan as we want to move towards comfort. But we have to be careful. I'm not saying that a lion's prowling around downtown Columbia. But we must be careful because this is a shocking representation of the judgment of God as we look to see his plan, even when it doesn't seem so appropriate or right. Strike me in the face. Number eight, speaking of the prophet, the lion, and the next guy who punched the prophet, have you considered, each of you right here, those followers and believers in the Lord Jesus, have you considered that God would send a prophet, two men, a lion, and a convoluted story with a surprise applicative punchline to reveal himself just to you? God's plan is often winding and so complicated that we only get glimpses into its fullness. And if you are one of his children, I guarantee this level of intricacy is playing out in each of your lives. God's plan is that big. It's so complicated that we can't comprehend because he is incomprehensible. And he is playing out all of these parts and variables, moving this thing forward where we see... (laughs) It's not a joke. Prophet, lion, and two guys. Somebody gets punched. A lion eats somebody. And somebody's hiding with a bandage. And there's this crazy story. All plays out for one man. God does that. And he does that now. He does it if you just stop and look around. He does it in your own life. He does it. In all of this, let's conclude this thing. God's gifts are so many. It is incredible. And they culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, surety, and discipline. Salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son. Whoever believes in him might have eternal life. God gave his son the gift of salvation. Surety. The speaking of Jesus. This is in 2 Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing, not because of you. You're a sinner, just like me. It's a sure thing because of God. It's a sure thing because of Jesus, who became sin on our behalf. Discipline. This is from Hebrews chapter 12, by the way. I'd encourage you, if if you'd like something to study tonight, uh, after this worship service, look at Hebrews chapter 12. It's an excellent partner to 1 Kings 20. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there with whom his father does not discipline. God, when he disciplines us, is revealing communication in a righteous way forward that we might see him and that we might believe. May we see the gospel of Jesus and may we be changed by it today. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for such a strong word. Thank you for how good you are. Thank you for the gifts that you give of salvation, surety, discipline. And yet, Lord, we know that there are many more. Eight applications came from this, but there's 800. And yet, Lord, we know that that is time we can spend in your word. So, God, I pray you would stir us up and help us to dive in. Even as we rise and sing your praise now, Lord, we pray that we might rise and sing continually, not only today, not only this week, not only this month, but in all the years of our lives together. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.